you know, you and I worked in the past together, Bobby, and in time trials, it doesn't always come together and you, you can't always wait until you have the guy before you start working on your protocols. Those are things that you need to work up and perfect because um, the day you can win, um, if they're not perfected, you might lose because of it. And that was something that Jerry Knetterman told me way back in 1984 when I won quite a few prologues. He said, you have to ride every time trial like you're riding in the yellow jersey. Because if you don't, the day you're in the yellow jersey, you'll make mistakes and you'll probably lose. We all saw Tade Pogacar win the Tour de France. But what goes on behind that victory? We sit down with UAE Team Emirates Director Alan Piper to find out how he overcame his own personal battles with cancer to make the top step in Paris with one of cycling's youngest champions. This week on Put Your Socks On. G'day and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how you going? Doing well, Gus. Hope you are as well. Didn't have much much time at all to deal with that Tour de France hangover since we had the World Championships this last week. So, man, it's uh, all go from here until the end of the year. That's for sure. Absolutely. It was a bit of a treat to have the World Championships come on only a matter of days after the finish of the Tour de France to fill that hole that uh, that a race like the Tour creates. And what a set of races the World Championships were. Yeah, starting off with the Women's uh, Time Trial Championship, it's, it's kind of hard to go any further without wanting to send our best wishes out to Chloe Dygart. She obviously was on a burner of a ride, had that terrible crash, and that was it, unfortunately. There, were, there was shock heard all around the world. I was listening to Christian Vanneveld uh, commentate, and he, he couldn't, could barely speak because it was just um, uh, unfathomable to, to see something like that in a time trial. But having crashed twice in time trials myself... Um, both in the Tour de France and both put me in the hospital. I, I understood her pain a little bit, but you know the the results may have been skewed a little bit, but that doesn't take anything away from Anna Vandenbreggen. She did a great ride. Uh, Marlene Husler was second place, and fellow Dutch rider Ellen Van Dyke made up the podium. Very, very. It would have been super interesting to see if Chloe could have you know elongated her lead because it seemed like she had such a big lead there at the start. But then when you look at the, the, the times between, you know, second and third, first and second, it w- wasn't really that much. So, you know, Anna finally wins the, the time trial championship. Uh, we did have Amber Nebin. Uh, we had two Americans in the top 10. We had Amber Nebin in sixth place and Lauren Stevens in ninth. But, you know, getting back to Chloe's crash, was, was this a rider error? Was she trying to stay in her bars for too long? Or, or could it have been an equipment issue? I, I, I know she had Jim Miller um, or somebody from USA Cycling in her ear through her earpiece there, but it just seemed like like she didn't realize that that kind of right-left turn, which no one else took in, in the bars, um, kind of maybe caught her off guard? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, she was absolutely hauling ass going through there, right? And um, and you know, when when you watch the watch the replay, up, you know, over and over again, you do you do wonder. Um, I mean, she was committed 
Um, that's for sure. And but as you said, I think to be honest, I think you know, looking at the fact that that there was no one else who rode their bars through there, certainly no one else that was going anywhere near near the speed that she was, right? In men included. I think perhaps maybe she just she just uh, she just committed and and then found herself halfway through the corner. Um, maybe not quite quite uh, confident that she could make it through on the bars, and then that was you know ultimately what led to to the accident. I do know. I, I mean, I spoke with um, with her director, team manager, owner at Team Twenty Twenty, and she said that uh, she said that Nicola Nicola Kramer, sorry, said that uh, she she didn't really elaborate on on what happened, but she did say she was okay. She'd had um, some surgery. There was no joint damage uh, and and some tendon lacerations. So horrific to see that crash. Um, and you know, we wish Chloe a speedy recovery, of course. But yeah, I guess you know we'll never know. Maybe she'll come out and and sort of say what she felt happened in the coming days. But um, until then, I guess it's just speculation. And she really only has one gear, and that's full gas. So if she was <laughs> if she was thirty seconds up or three seconds up you know, she was going to go full all the way to the finish. So let's just hope, let's exactly. wish her the best of luck in, in her recovery. And moving to the men's time trial championship. Wow, that that was impressive. It was the exact same distance for the women as for the men. So it was a, pretty much a normal length time trial for the women, but a little bit shorter for the men. And my my pick, and I got it right, which I don't do very often, was Ghana. But when I saw how fast he went out in that first time split and the way that he was pedaling, I was a little bit nervous that the return leg would would undo him. But no, turned out that uh, Filippo Ghana from Italy won by 26 seconds over the absolute rider of the season, Walt van Aert from Belgium, and Stefan Kung from Switzerland got third. Garrett Thomas, man... Fourth place is probably the worst place in in a world championship. You're right off the podium, but he's looking super super good for the Giro. So a lot a lot going on there. Um, we did have two Americans not didn't have their best showing uh, with Brendan McNulty and Lawson Craddock finishing right behind each each other in 29th and 30th place. But um, you know they they've got many more world championship time trials in them, so I'm sure sure they'll come back. Absolutely. And with the women's road race following up from the uh, men's and women's TTs again, and Vanderbregen with an exceptional solo performance. She pulls the double. Pretty impressive. And, you know, she got she wound up winning the the women's tour of Italy of uh, a week earlier because mm-hmm. Annamalek Van, Van Vluten crashed out and broke her wrist. She won the time trial with Chloe obviously on a burner and probably going to win. So this to me was like her confirmation was like, wait a second. Okay. Cycling happens. You have to cross the finish line and don't take the Giro away from me. Don't take the time trial away from me. I'm going to go out and prove that I am the best rider right now. And and that she did. I mean, she took off with 40 K to go ish. And, and that was it. That, that was, it was lights out after that. So, you know, Winning those two races with maybe a little bit of an asterisk, this one, absolutely no asterisk. She won this with everything and she deserves the accolades for it. Yep, could not agree more. It was uh, an astounding performance. And uh, we saw Annemiek van Vluten in second place there, a minute 20 down with Eliza Longo-Borghini. 
as well on to round out the podium. In the men's road race, another exciting finish. And dare I say it, I, I definitely didn't pick Julian Alaphilippe for the win, but watching the way that he won, I sort of felt like, well, how, you know, how else was this race ever going to go? Good point. Good point. I mean, he didn't, you know, he won a stage of the tour, had the yellow jersey, obviously kept his focus. And that's what's so impressive. You know, you get done with the Tour de France, everyone's tired and there's very short recovery in between. And he said in his post-race interviews that he, the last, once he lost the jersey, that he was basically preparing the world championships and, and that he did. And I tell you one thing, to anybody that watched that, it wasn't as dramatic as it really was. Because let me tell you this, if this was any other stage, if this was a stage in the Tour de France, or if this was a stage in any other race, it would have been so dramatic. It would have been like he was shot out of a cannon. The only thing that made it look like a little bit slow motion, like, hey, is this really going to work? Wow, this isn't that normal Alaphilippe attacked, was those four or five guys behind him were also climbing super, super strong. I mean, you had Walt Van Hert, you had Mark Hershey, uh, Kwiatkowski, Fulsong, Rolich. Those are the best riders in the mm. world. Normally, when you come to a stage in the tour, like we've seen him do in the past where he, he just hits the gas, there's guys up there just in good position, just got lucky and we're in good position. There's also GC guys that once they see somebody like, like Alaphilippe, they're like, hey, you know, I don't have to, you know, try to stick with him here. But he, he left the best riders of the moment in his wake. And man, I could not have been happier. Uh, like you, I did not pick him. I was more like the the Mark Hershey, the Mikhail Kwiatkowski sort of, you know, guys that were coming out of the tour mm. with, with a lot of momentum. But I, I just couldn't be happier for the guy. I really think that he's going to represent that jersey in the best possible way. And not not that the the past world champions haven't, but I think he has the it factor. He makes cycling exciting. And when you have a guy, Mikhail Kwiatkowski, that that says in his post race interview that watching him win a race is is exciting. Like the guy, he's racing against him, and he's in awe because <laughs> they could not do anything about it. And what what a hard. Remember, this was a total preemptive parkour. This was the world championships were supposed to be held in Switzerland. And they throw this one mm. in there, 5,000 meters, 2,064 kilometers, took them over six and a half hours. I mean, this, this was a hard race. And luckily, the, the weather reports were wrong and they didn't have any rain because that would have been a very, very sketchy circuit to do if it was raining. But, you know, we come out of, come out of it with a great race, a great world champion, and, you know, man, just, just more exciting names coming onto, onto the scene. I mean, Mark Hershey confirms that he is a bad mofo. Uh, Fool Song, Fool Song is saying, hey, I'm the only guy in the front group that didn't do the tour, but I'm doing the Giro in a week. Oh, man, you know, I saw Garrett Thomas do a, do a good time trial, and I thought to myself, wow, Garrett is going to be really, really good for the Giro. But when I saw Jakob right there after not racing what these guys did for the last three weeks, 
man, it's it's going to be pretty exciting between Garrett Thomas and and Jakob Fulsong, just to name two riders that are going to be going to the Giro in a couple of days. I was just looking down the list now, and Vincenzo Nibali was uh, one of the only other ones um, that didn't do didn't do the tour. I, uh, so you know, I think we're shaping up. We've just had an incredible Tour de France, an incredible Worlds, and we're treated to the Giro in a week. Um, to your point, though, about Alaphilippe, I think him winning the the World Championships with all of the classics still to come in the season um, that that really suit his characteristics as a rider. It's super exciting knowing that we'll see that jersey at the front of the peloton, you know, in a few days' time, which I think is uh, which is really cool, which is great to see because normally you know you have to typically wait. You might see them in in one or two races post post worlds, and then you got to wait the off season and yada yada yada. But now we get to see it in action straight away, so it's it's exciting. Yeah, and we can't we have to mention Walt Van Aert's two beautiful silver medals. <laughs> yeah, the, I the, mean, that would made. make a season for anybody else, but that had to sting a little bit. I mean, he obviously was a ama- had amazing form in the tour. And he just came up against two better guys on that day. And I, I kind of feel sorry for him. But at the same time, at his age, he's going to have plenty of time to get a jersey, a rainbow jersey in the future as well. You yeah. know it's a hard race when the guy that won finished 33rd about four minutes out. And, you know, he did that kind of attack with two laps to go that kind of had us all scratching our heads. Yeah. And then Richie Port, third place you know, finishing a minute and a half behind. Pogachar was the only guy on the podium that was in that lead group. But it just goes to show you, man, every race is full gas this year. And it's going to be different combination of people who has the mental matches as well as the physical ones to race, you know, at that intensity week after week. I mean, normally these classics are spread out by months. These grand tours are spread out by weeks. Mm. And now they're just one on top of each other. So I think if if you haven't enjoyed the the Dauphiné, the Tour de France, the World Championships, we got a lot more coming up with the Giro starting in a couple of days, the Vuelta, all the the Cabo Classics, all the Ardennes Classics. But man, these guys are not going to have much of an off season if we get back on track on normal racing schedules. So it'll be really interesting to see who who can absorb this whole workload and then push the repeat button and start at January racing tour down under next year. Yeah. Yeah. The racing has been savage. And I think something that's also interesting, you're looking at this, right? It demonstrates the the depth in the field and how, you know, a race like the world championships is really, I mean, I mean, we see Walt Van Aert up there obviously and, and Hershey, but like, you know, these races are really specific and they're, and they're a rider that comes out and that wins the Tour de France no longer is going to come out and just dominate a, a one-day classic, right? It's a, it's a really different skill set and we're seeing that kind of play out more and more, which is exciting to see, you know, a breadth of riders that that, that are good in, in different elements of the sport. So yeah, exciting and, and I mean, good luck to good luck to the riders that have to continue racing for another couple of months. Alan Piper was an old-school professional rider for old-school powerhouse teams such as Peugeot and Panasonic. Since his retirement in 1992 from the cycling world, he has worked with some of the best cycling teams as both a sports director and sporting manager. He was on the 2012 Giro d'Italia winning team with Ryder Heisdahl and most recently won the Tour de France with Tade Pogachar. Of course, we're going to get into that later, but first of all, Welcome to Fizzo, Alan Piper. 
Thanks for having me, Bobby. Pleasure. Man, before we talk about your recent tour victory, I was hoping that you would share with us and our listeners your story. You know, man, you've been at this a long, long time. And cycling back then was a lot different than it is now. So yeah, how did you get into cycling and how did you decide that you were going to uproot your life from Australia and move to Belgium? Well, uh, in Australia, I did a lot of sports as a young kid and I got introduced to cycling in a small town in Australia that we moved to with my parents. My, I, I was directly good in winning races and after two years, I was twice Australian champion already. And um, unfortunately, my parents break up and uh, due to my father losing his job and alcoholism and led to a sort of family breakup where I was more or less on the street as a 16-year-old and uh, lived with a family uh, from a friend of mine for a while. And so one of my friends was going to Belgium the next year and I asked him if I could go with him. And he said, yes. So I stopped school. I got a job in a factory so I could sort of pay my way where I was living and uh, save some money for the flights. All I needed was my mother's signature because I was still under 18 and I flew out two weeks after my 17th birthday. It was sort of like an escape from life but you know we're sort of maybe a normal logical step but an escape from life as it, as it were but how was it as an english speaker back in those days because i mean you had your little crew of guys like sean yates and paul sherwin skibby bob roll but yeah how how was it because now that's the international language in the peloton seems to be english but back then it must have been a lot different yeah when i first came to belgium in, in 77 it was it was really different and there was even a lot of um even a lot of racism you know fathers from other kids would call me a foreign lice and and call me names um, because there was no real foreigners here in belgium in, in those days five years later i turned pro or six years later i turned pro and there was a smattering of english speakers let's say 10 um, but I remember a guy called Michel Laurent, who was who won the Dauphiné, or late late seventies, saying to me that uh, there were so many of us foreigners now that there used to be only a couple, and at that time in '83 there was still only ten of us. So I wondered what Michel would say now, all these years later, when there's you know not so many French riders in the peloton anymore as there were. So the world has changed a lot, that's for sure. One of the, the teams that you rode for was one of my personal favorites, uh, Panasonic. Tell us a little bit about your time on that team. It must have been amazing. It, it, was, a, it was a good time for me. It was the team I really wanted to be in because I wanted to be, try and be successful in the classics. And Panasonic was the most famous team. Uh, having walked out of um, TI Rally with, with Peter Post and you know stars like Jerry Knederman and, and, and Jan Raas, Ulster boss, Plankart, Van der Arden, Phil Anderson. So I really wanted to be a part of that team. And uh, moving over from Peugeot uh, after three years was up, stepping up a little, another level, as it were, in professionalism and, and team organization. But Alan, you know, I know this very well, but you, you're, you're known for your organizational skills and professional and impeccable work ethic. Were you like that back in the days or was that something that you had to do to be a little bit more prepared coming all the way from Australia? Well, no, I think I was always like that. There was always in me a sort of uh, a sense of trying to be perfect in everything I did. It led to a lot of stress as well, <laughs> trying to be the best trainer and have my bikes the best they could be and trying to have everything under control. 
Um, it, it, it's sometimes a good trait to have, but also it can be something that follows you all through your life and never lets you really relax, you know. But definitely wasn't a part of my um, persona. And you're also very meticulous about equipment and you're very much the driving force behind the testing of wheels, tires, frames, clothing, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. This takes a lot of time and effort. And some teams just seem to do it for the social media posts. But you go that extra mile for your riders. How much of a, of, of a benefit do you think that that provides the riders? And why, why do you go that extra mile to make sure that they have all the information at their fingertips? I think personally, you know, it comes back to my persona about having the dots on, the, on top of all the eyes. But look, if I can give you a perfect example, it was a time trial in, uh, in the Tour de France this year, Planche de Belfi. We had the dots eyed uh, or the eyes dotted, <laughs> as it were. And I think that really made a big difference in the execution of that time trial and, uh, and, uh, and the way that Pogacar won the Tour de France. You know? And it, you know, you and I worked in the past together, Bobby, and in time trials, it doesn't always come together and you, you can't always wait until you have the guy before you start working on your protocols. Those are things that you need to work up and perfect because um, the day you can win, um, if they're not perfected, you might lose because of it. And that was something that Jerry Knetterman told me way back in 1984 when I won quite a few prologues. He said, you have to ride every time trial like you're riding in the yellow jersey because if you don't, the day you're in the yellow jersey, you'll make mistakes and you'll probably lose. So that was something that really stuck in my mind, you know, and, and leading to the Tour de France this year and having Pogacar there, you know, we were down, I went down once by myself to Plois de Belfi for two days. I went down a month later with, with Pogacar and six or seven other people and we were there for two days, you know, finalising in, 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 in a full simulation of the course with the gears that I'd chosen the month before and, and, and the day in the Tour de France, stage 20, we basically had everything in the can. We didn't even need to warm up on the course. So Pogacar could rest a lot, a lot more. And that whole culmination of, of putting the dots on the eyes all came together in the time trial in the Tour de France this year. I'm interested to know, like you said that you were meticulous as a, as a professional, as, as meticulous as you could be. I'm interested to know like how that process has changed. What does meticulous look like in 2020 and how has your position changed since you were a bike rider? Just going over how it changed since I was a bike rider, there were no bike positioning, there was no testing, there was no power meter. We had a heart rate monitor, but very few people knew how to use it. So it was flying by the seat of your pants. But um, going back a year, say a year and a half when I joined UAE, UAE basically an Italian team, very little history of time trialing, very little history of focus on time trialing, a lot of battling up front to try and bring some testing in and improve equipment and protocol last year, which culminated in getting a budget from Mauro Giannetti that I could work with this year, which was the first time in my whole career where he said, don't ask me for any more money. I'll give you this X amount of money. Do all the testing you want. Spend it however you want. Just let me know what you're doing. Once it's gone, it's gone. Well, anyway, it was gone, but I went over by 20% and that was still okay, you know. So we tested 15 riders on the track. Um, we got six or seven integrated cockpits for our best riders. We were down at Victoria for two days where we did, you know, uh, rolling resistance testing. So we brought all of that together 
you know, within a, in a year and brought the team to another level where last year the riders in our team were complaining about the Colnago time trial frame. And even Mauro, my boss, called me last winter and said, yeah, Alan, we're with Colnago again. You know, I know the time trial bike could be better. I said, stop, Mauro. Let's not even talk about the time trial frame. We need to work on protocols. We need to work on equipment. We need to work on positioning. And when that time trial frame is better or we change suppliers, we can move everything over and we're ready to go. We don't wait until we get the time trial frame to start working. And funny enough, on the Champs-Élysées last Sunday in Paris, I just said to him out of the blue, so the time trial frame from Colnago isn't so bad after all. <laughs> and he smiled because that's the bottom line. You know, it, it, they go hand in hand, but riders can really affect each other on, on what they think and and, uh, and and paint a different picture about equipment or, you know, anything within the team because of its negative or positiveness. Well, I tell you, right away watching watching the stage on TV, I saw your DNA all over that from that beautiful integrated cockpit handlebar. I was kind of drooling over that. I need to figure out where those come from because that was pretty sweet. His position, you know, just the way that he was absolutely attacking that time trial from from start to finish. And, you know, afterwards, you know, seeing you in the car, um, you know, with that emotional reaction was was priceless but let's back up a little bit here a year ago you were not in the same position that you are now and tell us a little bit about that if you will you know you had a second bout with with cancer and it was obviously very difficult on you uh, right as you joined this new team give us a little bit of contrast between a year ago and then standing on the top step into the podium in Paris? Yeah, yeah. Interesting question as well. Look, I started with this process of, of, uh, of, of trying to deal with cancer five years ago. I was diagnosed with, with, with prostate cancer. Uh, in the last five years, I've had two operations. I've had 40 radiation sessions. I've had six months of chemotherapy or five months of chemotherapy, hormone therapy. So I've sort of been through it all. But, but you know, last year, the, the treatment I had was... As the surgeon put it, we're going to hit it with a big hammer now <laughs> because we need to slow it down or put a, put a stop to it, you know. So, you know, last year was I come into a new team. Uh, I chose to leave BMC. I needed new, a new environment. I, I finally got a job in, in, in November of 2018 with the UAE. I'm really grateful for it. Uh, I came in and you know, led the team to a few races, of which we won Gent Wevelgen. So it was, it was a really nice classic season with Alex Christoph. He was third in Gent Wevelgen, in, oh, sorry, third in Rolf of London as well. But then Roubaix the next week uh, and the day after Roubaix, I started on chemotherapy. So I was more or less off the road for, you know, five or six months. Um, the team really supported me well. I could still do, my, do the riders program from home. All the races in between during my chemo sessions, I, I did all the PowerPoints for all those races. You know, PowerPoints that are from 14 to 20 pages long, depending on the stage and how complicated it is. So quite a bit of work goes into that. But they kept me on board and I came back to uh, came back to racing. I did a couple of one-day races in September last year, You know, very wary about you know, my, my reflexes and my stamina and all the rest of it. But 
to give you an example, last year the Tour de France passed close to my house in Gerardsburg and just 200 metres down the street, they turned the corner and it was quite, it was difficult for me to walk down to the corner and back again, you know, I was, you know, getting close to the end of the, the chemotherapy and doing hormone therapy at the same time, so I was pretty debilitated. Um, and then the long haul of, you know, getting your body back into order and, and, and finding the confidence again to sort of go out into the world but also to lead a team, you know, because you know yourself, Bobby, you've got to have that inner strength sometimes. You've really got to step up and put the hammer down sometimes. You need to feel inner confidence for that. So, you know, through that whole process this year, you know, did two down under, thought I was going to go to Paris-Nice, which would give me another test, but then COVID came along. By the time COVID was finished, I went to Dauphiné, which is only five days. So I got to the start of the Tour de France in Paris, in, in Nice, sorry quite wary and worried about if I'd have the stamina for three weeks to the France leading the team and quite um, emotional actually at the, at the team's meeting in, in, in Nice at the opera um, because, you know, the year before I'd, you know, been as close as you can get, get to, uh, you know, not being able to do anything and uh, all of a sudden I was back at the tour as first director. So, it was it was a huge uh, it was a huge turnaround and a huge uh, comeback, as it were. You know, not even talking about the three weeks of the Tour de France and the outcome of that. <laughs> yeah, Christian Vanneveld told me that he was doing the recon for NBC Sports, and he went by the mirror and he actually saw you, and he had to do some filming, and then he turned back around. And uh, he said it was just, you know, phenomenal to see you out there. But knowing you, your connection to Belgium with the stage going right through your house there, um, he said it was, it was, you know, A, amazing to see you. But we who know you knew how difficult that was for you to even step out on your front porch to see that. But um, watching you, um, I follow you on Strava, started to see you do, doing those rides more and more and more. And I mean, more, most importantly than anything, I was just excited to, to see you getting your groove back and getting on the bike again. And, you know, tore down under this year, I'm like, Alan's back. And then, yeah, we didn't really get to see so much because of the whole COVID thing. And then um, watching you perform and keep that team calm during the Tour de France this year in a, in a very, very special parkour. Tell us a little bit about Tadej. Um, you've been around a lot of amazing riders your entire career. Talented, naturally gifted, hard workers, everything. What makes Tade different? Well, I think the, the two biggest things with, with, with uh, Tade Pogacar, Bobby, are firstly, his insane ability to recover. Um, secondly, the fact that the kid always stays positive. He's smiling from morning till night. He's grateful that for everything that happens to him. He never complains. He goes along, he went along with everything that I said. Everything I said, he listened to. Everything I said, he took on board. He, but out of all of those traits, I think the big thing is that he's always positive. He always sees a positive side to every story and that takes away a lot of the stress, um, at least at this point in his career. You know, maybe that'll change because he's a Tour de France winner now. Uh, he'll earn more money. He'll have more pressure. Things won't always be as good as they are right now. You know, there's always ups and downs in life, but at, at the moment, those are the two big, 
two big things that I would say. That first, he's had has this phenomenal ability to recover, and secondly, um, he's always he's always positive, always has a smile on his face, and looking at life in a positive fashion. When did you decide, or when did when did you sort of believe? that he could go for the general classification of the tour and and genuinely give it a crack in the year 2020. I know obviously he had an exceptional result last year at the Vuelta, you know, of course, um, <clears throat> Tour of California, like he'd been very promising. Did you come into the year or did you make that decision last year that we're going to go and try the to win the tour in 2020 or did that kind of – did he just exceed expectations? Well, after his Vuelta last year, for sure, the writing was on the wall, but you've always got to – confirm you know you've got to confirm and a lot of riders come on the scene and then they disappear so today needed to confirm but look we went to training camp in december for me it was clear um our team was talking about aru being leader and today not having any stress and taking gaviria to the tour as well and that was just like (laughs) seemed absurd to me at the time and it took me six months of lobbying and battling and talking until I finally got them to listen that we weren't taking Gaviria, that we were going with a team that could just ride for this kid. We still had Aru on board. He was going to be testing himself, but there was no doubt in my mind the one we were going to Twitter France for was Tadej Pogacar. And I explained that clearly to Alexander Kristoff that he could get his chance to sprint. But once we got a sniff of the yellow jersey, that stopped and he was the first man on the front. And Alex was fine with that. You know, a lot of riders go to races and they have their own agenda, but more or less that was the battle as well because we went to Tour de France. Aru had an agenda, Formula had an agenda, De La Cruz had an agenda, Christophe had an agenda. And it took a, a lot of a lot of work and lobbying and, and, and hurting cats to get everyone in line, even, even the bosses, because we were getting calls from the UAE, or, or my boss, Genetti, was funneling down through Machin, funneling down to me that there was no one in the breakaway from us. And I'd had to do a lot of work behind the scenes before the tour, lining up all those pieces so that everyone understood the plan and the, and the importance of sticking to the plan, that you can't be doing multiple things and doing everything properly, you know. In the end, it all, it all turned out really good and it, it wasn't easy and it wasn't easy to get everybody on board. We started out with an objective of top five in, in Nice and a little dream of podium. We went on the first day to podium. That was it. That's what we were going for. And by the second rest day, it was yellow jersey, nothing else. But already at the start of the tour, I told them we had a new, unique opportunity. On the first rest day, I'd asked them how many guys, how many of them had been in the Grand Tour winning team. And I gave them an analogy of when Ryder Hesedale won the, the Giro in 2012 with a, with a not the strongest team. And not that they aren't good bike riders, but we'd lost two riders already with Formula and Aru. We had Dela Cruz with a broken or cracked coccyx since the first stage in the rain. In the end, we had Marcato with a bladder infection, so we were hobbling along on one leg with a guy who could possibly win the tour. So sticking to the plan was more important than ever. But in my mind, there was it was always going to come down to that TT. Don't ask me. I mean, it's easy to say in hindsight, but when I went there to see the course in, in July or in June, sorry, I knew the tour could be won and lost in that time trial and top 10 could change completely because of the time trial. So that's why it needed attention to detail. I was just disappointed on the Col de la Loza stage when Tade lost 17 seconds. De la Cruz rode in the front, forced him into the red. He couldn't come out of it. He lost 17 seconds to 
to Roglic, which was going in the, the direction, the wrong direction that we'd hoped for. We hoped he was going to get some time back. But, um, you know, the, the process from last December until the, till the tour started was a long political lobbying circuit to get, <laughs> to get everything lined up. <laughs> but, Alan, back up just a second. Pump the brakes. You, you've been in the sport a long time. I said that you're, you're an old school rider, you know, tons of experience. But now you're trying to convince the hierarchy of your team to invest everything in a, at that time, 21 year old, you know, what, what did you see and how, how did you get your head wrapped around that? Because we're, we're seeing more and more of these very like kids coming out of the junior ranks, out of the amateur ranks and all of a sudden being dominating. I mean, we got a 22-year-old Giro winner or Tour de France winner this year, 23 last year. We got Remco Evenepoel, um, who has an amazing future ahead of him. What, what do you see that's changed that allows these riders to not have to be, I guess, seasoned for three or four years before they're able, both mentally and physically, to go for a top result, which is normally reserved for those 28 to 32-year-olds? I, th- I think Bobby and you, you, you'll probably agree to this anyway that, that uh, sports science has funneled down the ranks. Um, you know when when basically you know the team you were with CSC and the team I was with High Road, we were pushing you know the, the sports science and the, and the equipment and preparation levels. But when Sky came on board, they changed the game and everyone stepped up in the, in the World Tour. But over the last, you know, 10 or 12 years, all, the, all of that knowledge is more or less funneled down through the ranks, I think, and even got down to 12, 30-year-olds. So, you know, they have trainers and they're, they're, they're trained better, they're, they eat better, their uh, equipment's better, their face planning is better, even as a 13-year-old. So they're all doing core strength. They're, they're all doing all of these things that 10, 15 years ago, you know, were, were the outliers in pro sport. And I, I think more or less these kids are coming on earlier because of all that of course you've got to have the ability but my big question is how long will it last how long will their careers be um there's an there's an analogy one of my swan years told me a long long time ago and he said you know a bike ride is like a flower you you put it in the window so it gets just enough sun you give it water but just enough water and it has the right temperature in the room so it can grow and flower at the right time and then the flower stays a long time so my question is you know has has have these kids had too much sun and too much water and been in too much temperature that maybe their careers aren't quite as long as, you know, the careers before them, you know? Um, that question we'll see in the next, you know, five to ten years, I suppose. And it sounds like, to just speak of, of, you know, the anomaly that is a rider like Pogacar winning the Tour de France, you dealt with cancer last year and, and, and went through the debilitating process of that and then to for yourself right to come back in to use your words to come back and then to fight a fight for a bike rider like Pogacar behind the scenes in order to make sure that he got to the tour with the support that he needed and the resources etc to do what he did in that final time trial why fight that fight what 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 why do you do it what put what why do you put yourself through that (laughs) yeah good question someone told me a long time ago that uh that I have the ability to see the end at the start. Don't ask me about it, but I can sort of do things and, you know, there's a lot of process in between and it comes down to the minute. 
um, and I don't know how I do it, but this was one of those cases I could see the end and, I, and without knowing the outcome, but seeing the end as it could be, you know. So, I, so that sort of um, mobilizes you to put things in place because if they're not in place, even if we're only looking at top five, things still need to be, there's a reason still for them to be perfect. And as Jerry Kinnettiman said, if you're going to be in the yellow jersey, you don't want to be making mistakes. And that's sort of my MO for everything, you know. But this was, this was you know, for me, this was the writing. On, the writing on the, was already on the wall, you know. Whether he was going to pull it off that final time trial, I didn't know. I, I, I won't say I didn't believe in it, but I knew sort of a semi-miracle needed to happen to get those 57 seconds back. Either Roglic was going to be on not such a good day and, Today was going to ride out of his skin and it might come down to a Fignon Le Mans style seconds uh, in it for the yellow jersey, but I didn't know it was going to be such a crushing victory. And I think myself, you, pretty much the entire cycling world saw the importance of that final time trial where, hey, we just need to, you know, stay in the game and then arrive in that time trial and maybe we have a chance to do something. But next year, you guys are not going to have that, I guess, cloaked ability. Because to be honest, the entire race, he was hiding in plain sight. Like he was there. And the, t- the other teams didn't isolate him or your team to put him under difficulty. The only time that he really lost time other than the cold lows there where you mentioned 17 seconds lost was in the crosswinds. So looking forward with your crystal ball, that you have, what are the conversations that you're going to have to have with team management this year in order to back up this result now that he's not an outsider, that he's a Tour de France champion? And the MO of winning the Tour is you're supposed to win again the next year. And if you don't, it's a, it's a failure. So what, what is on your, I guess, Christmas list of things that you have to do or convince team management to get done between now and Hopefully next July. Hopefully we'll be doing the Tour de France in July this year instead of September. I, th- I think, um, of, of course you're right. He got to ride in the shadow of Jumbo Visma, the whole Tour de France. But like I told some journalists at the Tour de France from Holland, there was only one rider that attacked at the Tour de France and that was Tadej Pogacar. And he got rid of all the competition for Roglic. So I came down to a two-man battle between those two. Basically, Tadej had made sure the others were out of the game. Okay, and they were they were comfortable with, with, with 40 seconds or 57 seconds. And looking forward to what I did say, I have said to team management four or five days before the end of the tour this year that we cannot come to the tour next year with the same type of team. Without even before we, we got to Paris, I'd said that. I said we need to come with a team solely for today and we have the elements within our team that we can do that you know uh, there are kids there are kids that are coming up you know we've got Brandon McNulty who will be a different level next year we've got Mikkel Bjerg who's going to be uh, you know super for the guys on the flat um, and you know if 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 Formolo he's a great rider and De La Cruz is really a good rider as well uh, we've got McNulty on top of that you know we, we've got some really good elements that we can put four good climbers behind today that makes it that makes it five and, and three rulers or even even uh, a fifth guy in support of Tadej, we will have a great team. And then we can not just be following and riding in the shadow, but we can also take the game to the mark. I don't say we need to ride like Ineos or Jumbo Visma. We don't need to be that type of team. We don't need to 
be using energy. And, the, you know, I was never a, a, a Grand Tour rider, Bobby. You were. But looking at Grand Tour riders, it's about saving energy. You've got you've got eight times 21 and that's your potential. And if you're burning matches every day for no reason, some, at some point you're going to come short of energy. And ride when you need to ride and ride when you have to ride, but don't just ride to ride. And I think the, the thing that saved us this year is we didn't get the yellow jersey and a blessing in disguise was losing time in the crosswind because if we hadn't lost that time in the crosswind, we might have come in the yellow jersey earlier and they, they, you know, they would have taken us to pieces. Um, we couldn't have defended and that would have, you know, would have possibly given a whole different outcome. But, you know, that without, you know, getting too far ahead of ourselves because, you know, people ask what can Tade do in the future? I give the answer. Back 20 years ago, 25 years ago, they said that uh, young Ulrich was going to win the Tour de France seven times after he won the first time, but he never won it again. So I'd rather savour the moment at the moment because it, it is a really amazing, you know, experience that we had and absolutely fantastic what Tade did and it needs to be, you know, taken in without sort of thinking too much about the future. But we are working on those things and there are new elements of the team coming in. And I think I forgot to mention Ulysses before, who is another guy that should be at the Tour de France with us next year. And if we really go with that strength in team with a leader, Tade, and of course it's a risk, but you've got to take a risk. You see it with Ineos. Um, their leader falls out and they're, they're going in breakaways the first time for, <laughs> since the inception of Sky, they're going in breakaways. It's like, what's the world come to? But look, that's the risk you take. You either go to win the Tour and you put all your confidence behind it and, 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 and into it with the risk that it could lead to be nothing or you go and you hedge your bets and try and take a sprinter and some guy for the intermediate stages and try and go and brace ways to win stages and hope that it falls together in, 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 the, in, in the TT. But I think if it's a guy like Pogacar, you really need to hedge your bets and go with everything for him. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I mean, we're, we're always thinking about you know, what can he do next without ever taking the moment to enjoy what you guys accomplished. So, Alan, thank you so much for coming on to to put your socks on. I know you've been super busy. I know you guys have a lot more to do before the end of the year. And maybe that's that's my last question is with this season just so truncated and then so top heavy at the end, um, what what are the riders that, because hopefully next year we're back on schedule. Tour, Tour Down Under starts in January. Perry Nice is in March. You know, Dauphiné is in June. Tour de France is in July. What what sort of, with, with the mega workload that these guys are going to have to deal with coming out of lockdown and then maybe doing two grand tours uh, so close to each other, What what is the race schedule going to look like uh, for a guy like Tade for the rest of the season, is he done or is he going to do some more racing at the end of the year? Well, he's doing Flesh Vallone on Wednesday uh, and then he does Liege-Beston-Liege on Sunday. We did take him out of Amstel to give him a little bit of a breathing space and he's normally coming up to Belgium to do the Tour de Flanders with me in two weeks. So, yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen, you know, Tour de France winner at the Tour de, Tour of Flanders. It's been a long time since that happened, but uh, he's excited to do it and wants to do it with uh, with Alex Christoph and we'll see how that goes. But, you know, that's his, his plan. He's got another three races on his schedule and then he's off, you know, until next year. Wow. Wish you all the best personally. 
couldn't have been more happy to see you smiling there in Paris. You've you've grinded your whole career, and it's so great to see someone like you reach the top of the sport. So happy for you, brother. Thanks, guys. And that's it, everyone. That's all we have time for this week. Hope you enjoyed this special episode with Alan Piper from UAE Team Emirates. I hope that he's enjoying and really relishing in his Tour de France victory with Tade Pogachar. You can find all of our past episodes, as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at VeloNews.com. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or whatever your favorite go-to podcast site may be. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program, and please spread the word by telling your friends about us. Get at us on social media at that is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. Make sure you reach out to us there, give us any suggestions, feedback, or just say hello. And that's it for this week. So until next week, thank you so much for, for listening. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. <laughs>